This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. Fish live, breathe, sleep, in fact, everything in the same body of water. Your fish rely on you to keep things clean and fresh. So do you know enough to keep them happy? Poor water quality is one of the most common causes of problems in the aquarium industry for both large and small systems. Many hobbyists only understand part of the story and really need to learn more. Our guest today is Alan LaPointe, the Director of Environmental Quality at the world-famous John G. Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. A chemist and zoologist by training, Alan will share important water quality lessons he has learned from 13 years at the Shed. Join us. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Alan LaPointe, the Director of Environmental Quality at the John G. Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. Hi, Alan. Thanks again for joining us. Hi, Roy. How are you? Thank you for having me. So, you've been there, I know, quite a while. Have you always wanted to work at the Shedd, or how did you end up at the Shedd Aquarium? Well, I've always enjoyed the Shedd Aquarium, and uh, as a child growing up in Chicago, I visited the aquarium uh, multiple times, uh, but I can't say that I actually ever thought that I would work here. I did study chemistry, uh, specializing in water, and uh, because of my interest in aquatics also, I studied aquatic zoology, and uh, my first jobs were actually in wastewater treatment treating human and industrial sewage. What I did find out is that the treatment processes for treating human waste is basically the same as it is for treating animal waste. And uh, the Shed Aquarium was looking for a chemist about 15 years ago. I applied. I assumed that there were a few chemists here and found out that they had no chemists. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get in the door. Oh, that's great. And I guess since, the sh- since you've been there, and I actually visited the shed when I was growing up too, and was definitely one of my inspirations for kind of getting into what I what I do now. How many aquarium systems do you manage right now? Well, you know, okay. First, I want to say, Roy, a system to us at the shed aquarium is any water, basically volume of water that has its own uh, life support components, and life support is what a hobbyist might just call. A filtration system. So we have hundreds, uh, a little over 200 
systems here at the aquarium, some of them as large as 3 million gallons, and some may be as small as, say, a 20-gallon tank, something similar to what you would have in your home. Wow, that's, that's a lot of water. So what is probably your most complicated system then in terms of filtration and management? The saltwater systems, as far as filtration goes, tend to be uh, a little bit more complicated. Because you're adding things on like foam fractionation, which some of the listeners may be more familiar calling a protein skimmer, those systems, especially our Caribbean reef tank, uh, has always been a challenge to us with the way the, the system was originally designed. It's not that the animals themselves make the system difficult. It's that the system design itself is slightly challenging. But most of the time, your saltwater systems have a much higher frequency of maintenance because of things like foam fractionation or perhaps denitrification or even phosphate removal that we might have. Okay. So, and we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about systems and uh, some of the things you're you're discussing. But uh, before that, I, I guess I have to ask, which, I guess, species would you consider the, the trickiest to keep in terms of water quality? What uh, animals? Now, this is the exact opposite, which is uh, always, I always find interesting. Most of the more difficult species to handle from a water standpoint are freshwater, and more specifically, uh, animals that are found in South America, perhaps in the Amazon basin. A good example would be discus or angelfish. Most people think because the Amazon, for instance, is so lush and there's jungle that the water itself would have lots of nutrients. When the opposite is actually true, there's very few nutrients in there. So in order to keep these in an aquarium environment, you have to keep very soft water with few nutrients, uh, which is very, very difficult. And any one of your listeners who have tried to keep discus, for example, would know how hard this can be. That's certainly true. So since you've been there, how have the systems and management changed over the past 10 to 15 years? Well, first, let me say this, Roy. I find it interesting how little things have changed since of a, the Shedd Aquarium has been built in 1930. If you look at our systems, and in fact, we still have some systems, a couple, that are running exactly the way they were designed and built in 1930. What I will say that there have been changes in the last 15 years. First, we saw a change from larger volumes to smaller volumes. So instead of having, say, five exhibits all connected to one water system, the trend went to having five water systems independently. Now we're seeing a trend back to the very, very large systems with newer aquariums that are being built. Uh, they're going with very large tanks and going back the opposite way. In addition to size and uh, either scattering or bringing back together these large systems, we're also seeing changes in some technology. Ozone uh, is a big one in UV, ultraviolet for sterilization, phosphate removal using things like lanthanum chloride, denitrification systems, and foam fractionation for removal of organics. And lastly, you're seeing changes even in the mechanical processes uh, where we're seeing things being pulled from other industries. Things like drum filters, which is something you never hear of in an aquarium environment, are now starting to be used. Okay, so there have been quite a few changes, and yet it sounds like some things haven't changed. So that's sort of the uh, the way things go. 
getting to some hobbyist, more specific kind of hobbyist type questions, let's, I guess, start at the beginning. How important is the starting water or the source water for a hobbyist? And what are your thoughts on source water? Yeah, very, very important. And that's the before you start any kind of an aquarium system at home, whether you're doing something, a uh, simple goldfish freshwater tank all the way to a very sophisticated coral system, you certainly need to know what you're starting out with. If you're making seawater or salt water by using some uh, artificial salt, uh, typically it's not as important uh, because mo- there's so many things in the water already that anything that's in your source water uh, is typically not at a level that's going to cause any problems or danger to your animals. On the freshwater side, Uh, It's even more important because if you're trying to keep an animal that lives in a specific region of the country, you want to try and replicate that water the best you can. If your water is extremely hard, if it has a lot of calcium or iron or other things in it, uh, well waters versus city waters, uh, things that uh, the cities uh, obviously will add things into water, uh, chlorine and now chloramines and other things. So all of these things can affect your animal systems. So the first and most important thing is to know what your source water is and what's in it. And secondly, determine if there's any step that you need to take in between starting with that water and putting it into your system. Okay, so now going straight to, to nitrification, just because that's so critical, can, can you explain the concept of nitrification and why it's so important? Yeah, in fact, you know, the number one killer of fish, both in at at some a big aquarium like the shed aquarium, all the way down to the home hobbyist, is almost always ammonia. And what happens is there are the uh, the fish are actually excreting ammonia across their gills and some through their fecal deposits and that enters the water. Now, ammonia itself is very toxic to the fish. The reason it's toxic is as the concentration builds up in the water, the fish themselves cannot release the ammonia off their gills, and their own ammonia that is in their gills actually burns their gills. So, So that's exactly how the process works. Now, luckily, there are bacteria good bacteria, nitrifying bacteria, that consume the ammonia. These are ammonia oxidizers. So in a sense, the ammonia is their food source and their waste product is nitrite. This is really, in chemistry terms, it's an oxidation reaction where where we are converting from the ammonia to the nitrite. There are other bacteria that, luckily consume or feed on nitrite, and their waste product is nitrate. This process has to go on in your system, or the ammonia, or in some cases the nitrite, could build up to a level that's toxic to the animals themselves. And how, how long does that usually take? And, and I guess kind of a related question, what, what are your thoughts on commercially available bacteria that they sell for you know, freshwater and for marine systems? Okay, first of all, if, if you don't put, if you don't use any starting material, you just start a new fish tank and you add, say, one fish, you will get nitrification. 
These bacteria live on the fish. They're in the water. It will happen. The rate at which it happens really depends on a number of factors, uh, especially temperature. If it's really cold water you're trying to keep, it's going to take up to a year to grow it. But at standard room temperature, around, say, you know, 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, the nitrification process typically will happen within a month. So it's very important that you nitrify first. Now, what you can do as a hobbyist if you're starting a new system is to add one animal or a small number of animals uh, typically in seawater systems, people use damselfish or something that's very hardy, and you will actually get the system cycled over time, and then you can start adding larger fish as you go. If you try to add all the fish in at once, you will end up with an ammonia problem and potentially uh, mortalities. As far as the commercially available starting nitrifying materials, I will have to say that I get a little bit leery about these bacteria that you can purchase right off the shelf that have been sitting on a shelf for a while. The reason is that those bacteria require things like oxygen and food sources, and they can live for a short period, but not long-term on the shelf. I have seen there are a few products out there that you can, and we do, and major aquariums do purchase from a few different places but we're getting, the we, we order the material ahead of time, the material is grown, and it is shipped overnight so that we can add it in our systems. Now, the other thing that I would like to say about the, some of the commercial ones, even though they do contain some good nitrifying bacteria, from our studies, we have also cultured out some disease organisms from some of these uh, products. So you have, to, you have to weigh the good with the bad. There is a potential that you could get uh, something you don't want and, and, and to put that into your system. Well, that's definitely good to know. So I guess if you had to make a choice, what would you suggest? Kind of My recommendation yeah. is typically to start your tank out and do it very slowly. In other words, add one fish. And then wait a period of time, maybe a few weeks, till you've got nitrification, and then you can add another fish. And then you wait a period of time, and then you can you can continue to build up your fish population without using these commercial products, and you will have no problem. Of course, you have then now you have added in the issue of which fish to add before other fish, and that's uh, an expertise I don't have, but uh, there are obviously challenges with the order in which you add fish and which ones you should add together and that, so you have to keep all of that in, into perspective also. But typically, if you build up your bioload, in other words, if you increase the number of fish slowly, you will never have a problem with the nitrification. If for some reason you uh, are at the Shedd Aquarium and marketing tells you that on June 1st you can add the fish and on June 2nd they're going to open the doors, you have a very different problem because you cannot add the fish slowly. In that case, we actually grow the bacteria ourselves here, but it's something that could be done in the home environment, but it is a little bit complicated. Okay. So I'm going to take a break in maybe a minute or two, but what parameters then would you consider to be the most important and what, you know, what should folks be testing for since, since we talked about ammonia and nitrite to start? 
yeah, testing testing your water is is probably one of the most important things you can do with a home aquarium, and certainly you want to check the basic uh, parameters on a regular basis. And when I say a regular basis, I would say at least once a week. Uh, you're going to test for pH to make sure that your your pH level has not uh, fluctuated or dropped. Uh, rapid fluctuations are the big problem. Certainly, you want to check your nitrogenous compounds to make sure that nitrification is working. You want to look at ammonia. It should always be zero. You want to look at nitrite. That should also be zero. You want to look at nitrate. Uh, that's the end product of that process, and it will continue to climb over time. Uh, you also, if you're if you're using fresh water, you may want to look at total dissolved solids or what is called conductivity. They have little meters now that are relatively inexpensive that can measure that. If it's a seawater system, obviously the amount of salt that you have in is going to be very important. You can measure your salinity either with a fancy meter or you can do it uh, with a refractometer or you can do it with something as easy as a hygrometer. Um, but definitely those uh, parameters have to be measured on a regular basis. There are other parameters you could measure, uh, alkalinity, uh, your phosphate levels, um, those are good. The problem is, is once you get beyond those basic tests, it becomes very difficult to perform those tests accurately in the home environment unless you have a chemistry lab in your basement. You probably had one when you were going through school, I imagine. So, <laughs> I, still have, I still have a home chemistry. In fact, I have a mobile chemistry lab in a, uh, in a large uh, 26-foot-long bus that I, that I use for, <laughs> for uh, going to different places and helping others out with, uh, with their uh, water chemistry needs. Oh, that's great. Well, let's take a short break, and we'll continue our discussion of water with Alan LaPointe after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Alan LaPointe, the environmental wizard from the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. So we were talking a little bit about some of the important parameters and a little bit about nitrification. Going back kind of to a step before that, what are some filtration options that you would think would be ideal for folks in the hobby? Yeah, there's there's lots of different uh, options out there, and it can be actually very confusing when you look at uh, at the catalogs and online and see all the different types of products that are out there. If you break it down, though, you can break it down to really the same simple functions, no matter if it's a large system or it's a small home aquarium, even a mini reef, uh, really of components, you need to make sure you have mechanical filtration. And mechanical filtration uh, in the home aquarium can be 
uh, done with canister filters or power filters or any of these other types. Some under gravels work fine. They're, the maintenance is high, but it's all there. And any one of those will function mechanically to strain out particles, keep your water looking good and, uh, and clear. They also typically function biologically. Now, something like a wet-dry filter will grow all this bacteria that you could ever need to have nitrification occur. The problem with the wet-dry is you're not coupling the mechanical with it, but you can if you just use something like a filter floss, some kind of a, a filtering material that the water goes over before it drips through the wet-dry. Now you've got the mechanical. But that second component, the biological, probably the most important, is the second component. You also are going to consider foam fractionation for seawater systems. Now, the fractionators are, you know, they bubble and people see them work. They're very, very important at removing organic material from the water, specifically organic molecules known as surfactants. Now, it's not necessary to have a fractionator, but it certainly will save your water and it will look much clearer for a longer period of time. Another component that's important is gas exchange, and this one is overlooked all the time. Gas exchange is merely the ability for oxygen to re-enter the water and for other gases like carbon dioxide to come out of the water so that it equalizes, the gases in the water equalize with the gases that are in the atmosphere. Now, do you need a special piece of machinery? Typically not. If you have power heads moving, if you have water tr coming back into the tank at the surface, that's going to give you gas exchange. But if you, if you have a chronic pH problem where the pH does not come up, it continues to go down, it's probably just a simple gas exchange problem. So all of these different components are important to your filtration process. I don't give out typically a certain brand or something that I like best. I think that they all work fine as long as uh, people find one that they like. Uh, canister filters are good. Power head filters are good. But the one thing that I do want to stress to everyone is remember, these filtration systems are not just mechanical. They are biological. If you People that have the most problems with their home aquariums, with water problems, water chemistry issues, typically are people that are too clean. They constantly change out the little cartridges. They take the filters apart and clean and bleach them. If you do it too much, all you're doing is constantly knocking back or actually killing off that good nitrifying bacteria that you need for your system to function properly. So you had mentioned ozone and UV now, I, I, obviously, you need them for the shed aquarium. What are your thoughts on those for some of the home systems? I think, in general, they're overkill. And I will say that I do not recommend, and I have seen it many a times, but I do not recommend ozone to be used in the home aquarium. You will get crystal clear water. You will break down organics. Um, but you also have a lot of safety concerns for yourself, your pets, your family, um, ozone can be very toxic. It also can be very, very toxic to your animals in your tanks. Uh, so I typically do not use ozone. Even at the Shed Aquarium, where we do use a lot of ozone, we only use it on systems that are typically over 15,000 gallons. So that, that gives you an indicator on, on, uh, on, on the use of ozone at home. I mean, my main suggestion is to stay away from it. 
as far as ultraviolet goes, I think ultraviolet radiation is a great thing. Uh, again, it's probably not necessary. I always recommend it for ponds. If you have a koi pond or something, a UV sterilizer in that situation is typically used to control suspended algae. But suspended algae is usually not a problem in the aquarium. And the UV, then the UV is there specifically to one control bacteria or two control parasites. I can tell you that UV is very good at controlling bacteria, but it's not that good at controlling parasites unless you have a monster unit for your very small fish tank. So in general, they're high maintenance, uh, they're fairly expensive, and I think that they're, uh, they're not necessary in most cases. But if people feel better about using one, they're typically not going to cause any harm. Going back to a little bit on some of the marine systems we were talking about, what type of salt should people use for fish uh, versus corals, or is there a difference? Well, I can tell you this. When I started at the Shedd Aquarium 15 years ago, we made all of our own water. And what I mean by that is we started with the city water, and we added every single salt component that we knew that we could, and we had a Shedd formula for making our own seawater. A few years into it, I realized that our quality control was not as good as many of the commercial brands that had started coming out. So we actually have switched to commercial-grade salts. Uh, currently, we're using Instant Ocean brand. Uh, we use the same Instant Ocean for our inverts and corals as we do for our fish systems. We have done some studies here on different uh, brands of commercial mixes, and we have found that most of them are very consistent, at least up to the minor components. And what I mean by that is salt water is 98% five elements, and then the next couple percent, it's mostly another 10, and that's about as far as we've gone. Then beyond that, is another 50 elements in what we call trace quantities, which are very hard to measure. Um, but if you, go, if you don't go all the way to trace, all of the salt mixes are pretty much the same. And uh, my personal opinion is that any of the commercial ones out there, whether it be Tropic Marine or uh, Instant Ocean or uh, any of the other brands, I think they're all of fair quality and uh, are fine for the hobby use. The salinity level is where you get a lot more questions. Uh, I can tell you that the oceans can vary from, say, 32 parts per thousand up to 37 or 8 parts per thousand. Now, the Shedd Aquarium, keeps our, we keep our salinity for our seawater systems between 32 and 36. Um, and it, it, it varies a little bit depending on the types of animals that we have. Uh, inverts and that, we really would like to be more 35, 36, a little bit higher because you get a little bit more of the trace element concentration in there. For fish, there's nothing wrong with uh, being at the 32 range. Now, with that said, I can tell you that if you went to 31, with most seawater animals that I'm aware of, you would be fine. In fact, I, have, I know a breeder who does clownfish, and he never goes above 15, and he never loses animals because of, of the uh, salinity. 
but to me, that's pushing the envelope a little. So really, I recommend to keep a, a minimum of, say, 30 and definitely don't go above 37. There's no point in that. Now, another type of filter you mentioned, the, uh, the foam fractionators and, I guess, protein skimmers, you mentioned were real important. How exactly do those things work? Yeah, the, uh, the foam fractionator or protein skimmer, if you prefer, is really a very simple process that uh, is, is natural. All of these processes are natural. We find them out in the oceans and in lakes and streams. And uh, if you've ever walked along, uh, say, the ocean, the beach, or a big lake uh, uh, along the beach, and you see this kind of foam that when the waves hit, you'll see a brown foam, and people say, oh, is that nasty? Don't go near that. That's some kind of pollution. Well, that's really nature's way of removing organics from the water. Now, these organics get in the water through the food, so you're feeding your fish, and the organics build up. And if you don't have fractionation, you will see your water start to get a tint of maybe a kind of a brownish, uh, grayish look to the water, and that's because organics have built up. Uh, do we know if they're dangerous to animals? Not in all cases, but there is some anecdotal evidence that shows that organic buildups can cause some issues, perhaps related to even lateral line erosion. Now, with that said, you put a fractionator on, and the way they really work, it's a very simple process. You are mixing air with water, and there are these large organic molecules, uh, typically surfactant molecules, which have one end of the molecule, if you will, doesn't like water. It's what we call hydrophobic. It doesn't like to be in water. It prefers to be in air or in oil or in some other nonpolar uh, medium. Now, the other end of the molecule is hydrophilic, which means that it loves to be in water. So what you basically do is you mix air and water together, and these long molecules, the one end that doesn't like water, will stick to the air, and the other end will stay remained in the water. But as you mix this air and the bubbles come up through the chamber, what you see is the bubbles coming up into the top chamber of the fractionator, and then they pop. And when they pop, what's released are all these little molecules that were stuck to the air. And that's what you're collecting, and you get that brown foam. So in, in simple terms, you're mixing air with water so that these molecules stick to the air, and then you take the bubbles out, which is the air, and then you let them pop, and you collect the organic molecules. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, I know people have problems in freshwater as well, but in the marine systems with pH, what are your kind of recommendations for pH control in marine systems? Specifically for marine systems, I, I really think there's two two different parameters you really should be trying to look at. If you only have pH, that's fine. But if you can, if you can test alkalinity, that's great too. Because alkalinity is a very little, sometimes a confusion. pH is the actual, if you will, the measure of how much hydrogen's in the water that's free. The measure of alkalinity is a measure of things in the water that would react with hydrogen if it were to come into the system. So the alkalinity, if it's, say, in a saltwater system, usually you want to hit, reach for about 150 milligrams per liter. Your pH should be about 8 to 8.2. If you see those things going down, um, you can use, there are commercial buffers out there that are great. Most of them are uh, of high quality. They work very well. Uh, the problem with them only is that they're expensive. 
So we have done some, we did some studies here on buffers to see what really does what to seawater systems. Now, if you use, and I can tell you this, if you use baking soda, which is known as uh, sodium bicarbonate in uh, chemical terms, uh, baking soda will give you a really good boost in your alkalinity, but it really will not change your pH very much. It'll bring it up a little bit, but it won't do much. Um, there's another compound called sodium carbonate, which is commonly known as soda ash, and you can buy this at some hardware stores in that. And uh, soda ash has a slightly different effect, little bit of effect on the uh, alkalinity, but a big effect on pH. Of course, the last component, hydroxides, which I never recommend using, huge effect on pH, no effect on alkalinity. So with that said, uh, I personally at home use uh, a, what we call a 1 to 6 a, or a 1 to 5, basically one part of sodium carbonate in about five to six parts baking soda or sodium bicarbonate. And take that and uh, just add it slowly into your fish tank and then measure your pH and alkalinity again and continue to do that until you hit those values that you want of 8.2 at about 150. So you mentioned the soda ash you can get just at your local hardware store, or where would you get that again? Yeah, you can usually get it from a, uh, from a hardware store, and it's called, sure. or you can buy it online. Um, as long as you're getting something that's uh, food grade, you should have no problem with, uh, with adding that into your system. Okay. Well, I have a, a ton more questions, but we're almost out of time. I, I did want to talk to you a little bit about maybe what you had mentioned in an earlier conversation. We had some plans about going over to Guyana to do some work over there. What sort of water quality work would you be looking at or research in Guyana? Yeah, to- uh, first off, let me tell your listeners where Guyana is, because every time <laughs> exactly. I tell everybody I'm going there, they think I'm going to <laughs> Africa. Guyana is a little country, a fairly small country in South America, and it borders Venezuela, and it borders Brazil, and, uh, and it borders Suriname on the other side. What's the, we've been going in there. Now, Shedd Aquarium does research and conservation, and we try to connect our research and conservation to our collection here at the aquarium. And uh, Dr. Ilsa Berzins, who uh, is now with us, who uh, used to be at, uh, in Florida, she has been doing a lot of work with corals, and we have done some work in the Philippines uh, with corals already. So there's a good match there uh, with our Philippines exhibit. We do work with uh, in the Caribbean, which matches our Caribbean. But one thing we were missing was our Amazon collection. We had no research going on anywhere in the Amazon. And we are now going into Guyana. Now you say, well, Guyana is at the Amazon. Well, yes and no. It is not technically part of the Amazon. It is north of the Amazon. And what splits the area that we're looking at from the Amazon is a mountain range. But they have a rainy season and a dry season. And once a year for a couple months, the system that is known as the Essequibo system in Guyana mixes by flooding, mixes with the Amazon system. And it's the only place the Amazon system mixes with another system. So there's a very, very unique situation where you have a, uh, two of these major water systems mixing, and what we found is that this area most likely contains one of the richest biodiversity areas in the world. First of all, it's untouched. 
um, besides the native people who still live there and live very much like they always have. But the area has, there are already over 600 species of fish that are known, and there have been no studies really done there, a couple minor ones. So Shedd Aquarium is very excited to get into this area and uh, try to do some, some good and some preservation. Now, what are we doing? The first studies we're doing are water because we want to see what, what are the waters like in each of these individual systems and what happens when they mix and how does that change. There is also need for background data on this water because in the future it's possible that uh, Orgayana itself may decide to go into more mining or logging or some other thing that could cause degradation to the water system. And if we don't have baseline data, then we don't know if things are changing. And that's the gist of what we're doing. And it's very, very exciting. It is very remote. Um, and uh, you basically live like Indians and, and get in there. But if, uh, if that's your kind of thing, like it is mine, it's, uh, it's a fabulous experience. Sounds like that's going to be definitely a lot of fun. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I, I've got tons more questions, and we'll probably have you on again at another point in time. So definitely thank you very much, Alan. And I'd like to thank our producers, especially Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Did you have any final thoughts, Alan? I did. I did want to bring up uh, one thing that that's not talked about much, and 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 it really is uh, just to the audience. Uh, we are all, as you know, we are all we all love our animals, and and we do our best uh, to keep our animals alive as we get them. Once we get them in, and that I really want to focus. I want people to start focusing on where their animals come from. It's not always possible to know exactly where they come from, but we have to understand that that especially in marine fishes. These fishes uh, are still collected from the wild. The populations are not as high as they used to be. In some areas, they're, they're actually very depleted. In other areas, they're still very strong. But do your best to try to find out, you know, how your animals get to the store where you're going to purchase them. And make sure you're buying from someone that you respect and believe is doing a really good job. And make sure you do your homework that you don't get a fish that might be a little bit out of your particular bounds. Uh, start with fish and, and raise fish that you know you can keep alive and do well. That's great advice. Thanks again, Alan, for joining us. Thank you very much, Roy. Please be sure to check out Alan LaPointe's Aquarium Mania bio page. I also encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog. You'll find pictures from this episode, and you can ask questions or make comments. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Chicago, be sure to visit the John G. Shedd Aquarium, definitely one of the world's finest. And if you're ever in Florida, also be sure to visit the Florida Aquarium, as well as the Aquarium Mania exhibit there. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And always check your water quality and make sure everything's good. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.